Blog Talk Radio. Good morning and Happy New Year. This is Howard Smith, and I'll be your host for today's program, New Business Paradigms, Conscious Commentary on Business and Society with Ronaldo Brudico. Ronaldo is the president of the World Business Academy, and I'm a member of the board of directors of the Academy, as well as a vice president and wealth advisor with Morgan Stanley. If you'd like to know more about the Academy, you can go to our website, which is www.worldbusiness.org. During today's program, we'll again be covering several broad-ranging topics, along with our lightning round. Um, We have not had any questions come in on this week's show, uh, but if in the future you ever do want to uh, send in questions, we're happy to have them, and we'll read them on the air. And if you'd like to do that, please send an email to us at info at worldbusiness.org. One of the purposes of these monthly calls is to present you, both our members and our listeners, with concrete, actionable ideas. Today we're going to be focusing on two topics. The first is the Academy sees a better U.S. economy in 2012. Why? And what needs to be done to further shore up the recovery? And two, why the U.S. budget deficit isn't as important right now as you might think, and why the budget deficit is a political issue not an economic issue. As usual, we'll have our lightning round, which is a series of quick insights and comments on various asset classes, such as bonds, equities, gold, and real estate. Our focus today is going to be on um, what is a deficit and what is a government deficit. We're going to be doing our financial literacy section of the call about – I'm sorry, I'm getting all tongue-tied here. must be the new year. We're going to be doing our financial literacy section of the call – and we're going to be discussing what is a government budget deficit. Now, Rinaldo, one of the purposes of these monthly calls is to present our members and our listeners with concrete, actionable ideas that reflect the World Business Academy's desire to bring socially conscious practices on business and society. Can you expand on this for our audience and explain exactly what this means or entails today? Oh, happy to. And Howard, thank you. And I want to... Uh, thank you, particularly since I think this is the first show of our third year of the broadcast. This is indeed. So it's kind of fun to have 24 in the can, and um, I always love having people go back and listening to them from six months or a year ago, see how we did. Uh, I actually had occasion to do that recently, and we did really well. So I'm happy to have people go back in the archives and listen to what we were saying as we said it. I'm particularly pleased that uh, we were so um, strong in our uh, negative assessment of how President Obama was handling his job six months ago. And I remember the show we did where we said if he's not going to step up to the plate, because we only have one president at a time in this country, then he needs to step aside and let someone else take the office. And I'm just delighted to see that he's, and, and I don't think he's even heard of us, so I doubt it's because of us, but because of the factors we were looking at and analyzing in these talks, in these radio shows, I think he decided to, he had to do something very, very different. And what he had to do was he had to treat himself as, a, as, a, as basically the president of the country under siege. And when I say under siege, by that I mean as a wartime president, you look around and say, what, is, is the country at risk? And, and we were. Uh, we were being held captive. Our economy was being held captive. Our society was being held captive by a, seri- by a small group of economic terrorists, which I refer to as the Tea Party. And um, I doubt there's anybody on the Tea Party listening to this call. I think they'd find it too inflammatory. And I don't say that because they aren't part of the audience. I say it because it's time for Americans to get clear what it is we stand for and what it is we don't stand for. 
uh, in that context, I think some of the some of the sanity that's beginning to return to the political process. When you hear people like uh, Senator Allen, former Senator Alan Simpson of Wyoming, basically when he was asked point blank by Matt Lauer, did the Republican Party change? Because you were considered a really conservative Republican, and your views don't comport with the with the, with the mainstream of the Republican primary. And uh, Simpson said, "Oh no, the Republican Party changed." And I want to put that in context. Uh, we've long known that Nelson Rockefeller, who was a moderate Republican and, and I think spoke for some very traditional Republican values, uh, was not really well liked by the end of his life by the more conservative wing of the Republican Party. And that was a tolerable difference, but, but no one said Rockefeller shouldn't have been a Republican. What's more shocking is if you look at the positions, particularly on taxation, of Dwight Eisenhower, who was one of the legends of the Republican Party of the last century, uh, he clearly would not qualify as a Republican today. In fact, he wouldn't be tolerated in the room. But more fundamental, when you read the, 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 the reports, the written, written, the verbal reports of the granddaughter and the daughter of Barry Goldwater, and you realize that Barry Goldwater would not be accepted in the Republican Party today, then you recognize that the word conservative doesn't mean what it used to mean, because clearly Barry Goldwater and Alan Simpson are conservatives. What the Republican label has become is something that's about a set of values which are nothing close to what America stands for. And therefore, those values, to their logical extent that they're implied, become destructive of the fabric of American society. What do I mean that? Well, Alan Simpson, former senator from Wyoming, said it best when he said, you know, everyone on this call, I'm sure, Howard, has a friend or an acquaintance or knows someone who is gay. Why would any Republican say that they shouldn't have equal rights before the law. When the Republican Party historically has stood for the principle of get the government out of your bedroom, not put it in there. Um, and he gave several examples like on social issues. And the reason I'm, I'm reporting these Republican comments is because as we see the Republican debates rolling forward, and, and I have found them to be remarkably um, discouraging that the entire group is – operating at such a low level of uh, thoughtful d discussion. Uh, but the one that Simpson picked on that I thought was the most important was when, he was at, when they asked all nine candidates on the stage, if, you were good at, if, if, if Obama would agree to raise taxes $1 in return for cutting expenses by $100, so you get $100 of the cut, expense cuts for $1 of tax increase, would you do it? And all nine said they wouldn't. When they said that, when every single one of them said they wouldn't, that speaks to a level of doctrinaire um, opinion opinions, which is basically pandering to the small Tea Party group, which is destructive of the very economic fabric of America. Of course we have to have a fair tax structure. Of course we've got to be able to talk publicly about what that tax structure be without somebody accusing us of being un-American, as Romney did the other day, or worse yet, the way Romney put it on, on, on television the morning after he won in, in New Hampshire, tax policy should be discussed quietly in private rooms. Well, that's insane. That, that's like saying, keep the, pe keep the people away from the real issues. So we are now in a period, I call it the silly season. We're going to go through these, these primaries. We, there are, if, if Romney wins decisively in South Carolina, He's the nominee. Even if he doesn't, he's probably the nominee. And the question is, will people permit him, having gone as far to the right as he's gone, past any reasonable point, to be a serious contender for the presidency of the United States? That's the question. Not whether he's a Mormon or not. 
And I believe that we really need to look at ourselves as a society now and say, okay, it's time for us to grow up and wake up, not be children. We must be adults. Where does our vested interest lie? What's happened in the economy, for example, in the last year? What's going to happen in the year ahead? As you made a mention at the beginning of this call, and I hope we're going to have time to talk about it some more, the Academy issued its year-end report at the end of 2011, the last week of December, in which I said on, the, on our, our Twitter feed, please, if you're not following the Twitter feed for Ronaldo, please get on it, because that's where I try to put in at least one or two things a week that are current updates that I think are very valuable to you. They're very brief, 144 characters, and I think that you can find them useful. Well, I tweeted, Ronaldo, just let me freeze here for a moment there. Uh, for those of members of our listener group out there um, who are not familiar with how Twitter works, how does somebody connect to Twitter and to your comments? What do they need to do? Go to twitter.com, search for my name, Ronaldo Brutico, and it'll tell you how to click and then follow me is all you have to do. Click follow me and, and it'll it'll instantly put you in. Every time I tweet, you'll get it, you'll, you'll get it on your list of tweets. Uh, and it can go to your cell phone and go to your computer or both. But But my point is at the end of the year, I said, and this is the first time I've been able to say this since 2008, I said, okay, it looks like we're going to have an uptick in the economy. And just to put statistics to that, Howard, uh, prior to the end of December, I was looking at at most a 2.2% growth in GDP in uh, the year 2012. I am now looking at something between 22 and 3%, which is a huge jump, it's like a 35% improvement. Of my original, and by the way, I think the current consensus is 2.2 to 2.4. So I'm now predicting the economy will do better than the consensus of econ economists generally, and I'm more than happy to explain why. I hope people ask me why. I hope they give me really specific questions and listen very carefully for a lot of specific answers. Now, whether we can get all of them into this show or not, I don't know. But I want to talk about why the manufacturing, job creation, and manufacturing sector is one of the strong points in the U.S. economy now and is up. I want to talk about how um, the National Federation of Independent Business is now seeing an increase in optimism for six months out. I want to talk about how we're going to have a, a really helpful thing that the corn ethanol subsidies have been eliminated and how that will improve our, our agricultural costs and help to keep reflation pressures down. I want to talk about why oil was $110 a barrel a week or so ago, why it's $100 today, and what the price of oil is likely to be during the rest of the year, and which countries in the globe, i.e. Iran and Nigeria, will have the most to affect that, more so than our consumption in the U.S. I want to talk about the, 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 the fact that the, the all-electric Ford Focus is now available in New York and California. It will be available in at least nine other states by June of this year. This car is going to will end up costing you nothing It'll be free if you buy it because you'll save so much money on gas in the next three to five years. Literally, it'll be free. So, and and this, is a, this is a car only made by Ford and only made in the USA. So these are all tied together, these concepts. I don't know how many of them we'll get into. I've got a whole bunch more I could list. But the bottom line is because the payroll tax deduction was withheld, the, the president stuck to his guns. He did what he was supposed to do because we only have one president at a time, and this president had to stand up to the Republican Congress and say, enough is enough. We've got to get the government moving. We've got to start helping the middle class. And he pushed through the payroll tax. I'm confident when it comes up in February for, for the full-year extension, it will get it. I believe the uh, unemployment benefits, which has also come up in February, will also be extended. Those will help consumer spending. And together with that, 
and a number of other factors I'm not going to go into right now because I've probably overloaded the listener. Uh, it looks to me like we're going to have a year that's better than last year, and I'll end on this note. Last quarter of last year, we did 3%, probably close to 3% GDP growth. I believe we can do that for the entire year next year if we handle it right. Right. I will add to that that in two weeks on February 2nd, uh, I'm going to be hosting a function here in Ventura County, California, where we will be having one of the economists from the Federal Reserve Office in San Francisco down to speak to us. Uh, preliminary reports from the Fed yesterday basically are exactly in line with what you just said, and I'm very interested to hear what they have to say in two weeks, and we will report on that um, during our next show. Yeah, and by the way, people would well. like to – and Howard, I want to encourage you, because people listening – I think everybody knows who's listening that <clears throat> when you – if you call in or write us a question between shows, we'll still answer that question, even if you can't listen to the live broadcast. Uh, right now, Howard and I are a couple of times <laughs> apart, and you know that's okay. We can do that. You don't have to be here live. Get your questions in. And, and you could ask questions of us like, what did the Fed say in some detail? We'll be happy to answer it. Basically, as Howard just reported, Yesterday, the report came out very, very relatively bullish, and I was pleased because when I issued my report at the end of December, I was the first economist I knew of that was saying that 2012 was going to be significantly up. Now the Fed is reporting the early signs of that are already manifested. In all but one of the 12 Fed districts, the economy turned up, and some of them quite significantly. And by the way, there's a great chart we can tell you about that's an interactive chart. You click on it, and it shows you which states are doing best in each of five separate categories, including turning around unemployment, where the housing crisis has bottomed out, which, by the way, parenthetically, folks, housing crisis has bottomed out here in the U.S. Great news. For the first time since 2008, the beginning of the recession, resale of existing family homes defined as uh, uh, existence for a year or more. Resale of existing family homes is now back at pre-recession levels. That's enormously important. So uh, a lot of data coming out, a lot of it good, and pointing together to a, a direct path. If the president keeps his eye on the ball, which is the economy, and restoring the middle class, and we keep the conversation that Occupy Wall Street started going, looking at what about this income disparity issue and talking about it, what will happen is we'll get some fair tax policies, and please let's get into that later in the show about tax policy, because we know the Bush tax cuts are going to expire at the end of this year. Let's talk about fair tax policy. Let's talk about smart uh, budget re requirements. Let's talk about smart growth, and let's talk about how the, de the debt, cumulatively, will, re will decline over time starting in 2013 if we handle 2012 right. Good, good. Well, let's, we're going to do our financial literacy section up front today uh, because most of our show is going to be dealing with questions about debt and deficit. Um, and so our real question is, hey, what is government debt? And the first thing I want to flash back to is that during World War II, um, we're coming out of a depression. We needed to generate an enormous amount of productivity in order to um, build military equipment. We had to get people working Creating this, we had a fund that armed forces that I think was over 1 million to 2 million uh, soldiers and, and seamen and so forth. Um, at that time, the debt was considered roughly uh, between 100 and 120% of the gross domestic product. It was a huge number. Now, for all the screaming about what our debt is now, we're literally at less than half that number with our debt. Um, and there was a wonderful article that Paul Krugman had in the New York Times 
a couple of weeks back, talking about these issues of what is debt and why most people really don't understand the difference between you and I borrowing money to pay off our home to, to pay our bills versus you have government issuing uh, debt in any form, savings bonds, treasuries, and so forth. And he points out that there's a significant difference. Um, one, that we're borrowing as a nation, we're borrowing the money from ourselves, not from someone else. The only real obligation the government has is to ensure the stability of the government and that the specific debt bills, and in other words, a given treasury, gets repaid. In order to do that, they can either do one of two things, which is continue to issue more new debt, um, or they can pay it down, or they can let inflation, which again, typical inflation at 4% a year, which is a normal number, we're below that at the moment, debt cuts in half every 15 to 18 years. So that's simply you inflate your way, um, which is the expression that people in the Fed abuse frequently, you inflate your way out of debt problems. And if you maintain a certain level of taxation, um, then that debt also goes away. And the notion of taxation, um, everyone complains, oh, you're taking money from here and spending it there. But what you're actually doing is recirculating and speeding up the velocity of money in motion. Um, so that you're not Let me give an example of that. I think that's a really great point, Howard. People, under, people really understand it. See, if I give a tax break to a working person, so one of the 160 million people whose payroll tax was held hostage by the Republicans in December until the president backed them down. When I, and let's say that that's a typical average working person, so they're making around $45,000 a year. And I give them $1,000 in cash. That person at $45,000 a year is barely making it through right now. They're able to pay their mortgage. They're able to feed their family. And they're able to do very little to take care of themselves. And if, they, and if they're one of the 50 million without medical insurance, they're hanging by a thread. If they're everybody else, they can get along and they survive till next year. But they're not accumulating savings. And we know that because we've had a net savings decrease over time by the middle class that's been precipitous. What Howard means, and when you say circulate, that same $1,000, if I give it to that individual, will end up most likely being spent for that thing they've been holding off on, that, that, that new sofa, that, um, uh, that, uh, trip, that weekend ski trip, or that, uh, that consumption that they couldn't give themselves because they were just too short of cash, or could even end up in savings, which itself could be a good thing. Now, that $1,000 will circulate if they consume it because they're sitting, living at the edge of their consumption capability. If I give the same $1,000 to, uh, to Warren Buffett, it won't change his life one bit, meaning it will go straight to his bank and no one will ever see it because it isn't, he isn't hanging by a thread waiting for the next $1,000 to come in. So the more money you have, the less likely you are to spend when you get a tax break. That's why this whole concept of job creators is complete hogwash. Um, just like the debt deficit conversation is a political red herring being used to take people's attention off the fact the economy is getting better. Well, now, let's, let's hold off a little bit on that direction since that is going to be one of our topics later in the show. I don't want to overemphasize that now. Um, but I do want to go back to the notion of velocity and the economic multiplier effect. Um, typically, when a new dollar comes into a community, um, 
it circulates anywhere from five to sevenfold. The speed at which it circulates is an important stimulus to an economy. Now, conversely, when you pull a dollar out of circulation, it has a negative five to sevenfold impact on that local economy. So if you need and want to stimulate an economy, which is what one tends to want to do when you're in a recession or a depression, you speed up the velocity of money and get it into those areas that will circulate and move it the fastest. So as Rinaldo just pointed out, giving it to Warren Buffett is not going to move that money. Giving it to somebody earning $45,000 a year will. And this, we'll talk about the politics of this later on in the show, but when you try to crimp down on debt and deficit spending, what you're really trying to do is slow the economy down. Now, Krugman also points out that people have been screaming ever since the crash in 2008 that every movement by the U.S. government to increase the flow of capital, whether it's some form of stimulus or funding shovel-ready projects, as they're called, um, is going to create massive inflation. That's been the fear that has been promulgated for over three years now. We have not had inflation. We've had anything, if anything, we've come close to deflationary trends in the economy um, because there isn't enough money moving around, and you have such high levels of unemployment that those people who are not working are hanging on to every dollar they can. And those yeah, people who are Howard, working just, are also scared. Just stay there for a second, because I, I, I think that's an, such an important point. I don't want people to forget that there was a proponent of exactly this theory, which was it, when the economy turns down, cut back, reduce government spending so you can reduce the federal debt, and by doing that, you'll wash the problem through and you'll come out the other side. And the proponent of that theory was a man named Herbert Hoover. And we call that Hoover economics, and it is what created the Great Depression. People have to, re you know, there's this great phlo um, um, uh, this philosopher, historian, uh, uh, Santana, George Santana, who said, those who do not remember history are condemned to repeat it. So we don't want to get into Hoover economics, and that's exactly where this insane conversation about debt will take us. And the only reason we're having that conversation, Howard, has nothing to do with economics. That's the point I want to make clear. It has everything to do with politics and nothing to do with economics, and that is Hoover economics that you're describing. Exactly. And well, why don't we use this as a moment to segue into our first topic, uh, which is, again, talking about the economy and why the Academy thinks that we're improving and going to improve strongly in 2012. Well, yeah, I, I, I think that um, it is a great segue because what you're explaining to people, what you just went through with this financial literacy section, is there, that it is relevant that we have debt, and we must talk about what to do about our debts. That's not an irrelevant discussion. <clears throat> What's wrong about it is when you're in the middle of a fire, a forest fire, it's not the time to say we're going to pour gasoline on it in the hopes that it will burn itself out. Or a better even analogy would be to say, oh, it's time for water conservation. Water conservation, right. We're going to save our water for the fire that might come. You know, right. The fire's here, and it's called unemployment. And the fire in this country that's destroyed the belly of the empire, so to speak, what's rotted this country out from the middle is the destruction of the middle class. And if I could tell the top 1% and 2%, of this country, one thing that I would want them to understand and get through their thick heads, your greed is killing everybody, including you, because 
there is a small and smaller and smaller percentage of people who will be ultra-wealthy, and that's what the concentration statistics are all about. When you read about the fact that uh, 44% of the nation's wealth is concentrated by less than 5% of the population, that's what they're talking about. Is that fewer and fewer people are richer and richer. Now, that point is very important because even those people cannot survive indefinitely when you rot out the middle class. The middle class is what you require in a capital markets economy like the U.S., so our number one objective, whether you're in the middle class and you're slipping, or whether you're not in the middle class and want to be, or whether you're in the upper class and look down at the middle class with some disdain, the bottom line is all of us have got to get behind recreating the middle class. What does that mean and what does that look like? Here's what it looks like. We just eliminated, thank goodness, as part of Obamacare, we just eliminated um, a huge donor hole in the Medicare benefits so that the the prescription drug benefit in Medicare is now back where it should have been in the first place. That alone will relieve budgets for seniors dramatically. And the nice thing about seniors' budgets is that when you relieve seniors' their budgetary crisis for drugs and their maintenance, they're able to spend more because they don't have the same savings requirements as a younger person. Let me say something else that was recently pointed out. Um, of all the programs that we've had since the 30s that are working today would be Medicare and Social Security. The fact is our seniors have come through this last great recession relatively well because we had Medicare and we had Social Security. Neither one of those problems, neither one of those programs is a serious problem. And anybody who wants to tell me that Social Security is bankrupt, I will defy them to debate me in public place anytime they want. Social Security has almost no problems associated with it, and it's worked now for 60-some years. What we need to do is, are there some things we could do to fine-tune it? Absolutely. No question. And same with Medicare. But you know the first change I'd make in Medicare, Howard? The very first change if you want to save money in Medicare? I would say that like every other country in the Western world, we allow the government to negotiate for the price of its drugs, and the price of every drug covered by Medicare will come down by 40% on average. Now, Germany buys drugs from America – that are made in America at 40% less than we pay for those same drugs in America. Why? Because Germany and England and Italy and France and Spain, and I could go on and on and on, all those countries negotiate for the price of drugs on behalf of their national insurance schemes, their national insurance agencies. We in our government don't let that happen because Big Pharma has so much political power in Congress we're forced to pay 40% more than the fair market price. By the way, the drug companies are very happy and very profitable to sell to Germany at 40% less. So we have a 40% tax, a hidden tax, on every drug sold to the government, which and needs to be eliminated it, overnight. Uh, when you think about a corporation selling different prices to different customers, which is what European countries truly are, the ones who are paying the higher prices are actually making up for the fact that it's being sold at lower prices to other places. So in fact, we are subsidizing through our purchases at higher prices the very medicines that are being sold overseas. Except we are, but you know what we're really subsidizing? We're, we're subsidizing a culture of corruption, Howard. We're subsidizing the ability for fleets of jet aircraft to invite scores of congressmen on innumerable junkets. We're subsidizing tens of billions of dollars of money to flow through our political system. To, to, to reward those Congress people who vote for Big Pharma and to punish the ones that don't. And now with the Citizens United case, and I just want to t- digress for a second to talk about this. 
with the Citizens United case, and everybody now, remember the, 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 the week that decision was made, I gave a bulletin. I said this is the worst decision in the history of the United States since Dred Scott. For those of you who don't remember the Dred Scott case, it was this case that said that slavery is legal. And, of course, it turned out to be the cause of the Civil War. The Citizens United case is the worst case in American history since Dred Scott, and in some ways is even worse than Dred Scott. And every justice that voted for it. Hmm? I would say what? worse than Dread Scott, actually. Yeah. I, 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 I don't think that's not a – I think that's a reasonable position. And every justice that voted for that will go down in history, so provided the, their American history survives, the, the calamity that they've inflicted on us, that will go down with every judge who voted for it as such a bad decision that is clearly an example of corruption of the highest court in the land. This is probably the second worst case after Citizens United and still worse than Dred Scott was the case where they instructed the government not to count the Gore votes in Florida. No Supreme Court in the history of the United States ever had the temerity to tell the legislative branch to not count votes. That is stunning. And when we saw that happen in 2008, uh, excuse me, in 2000, and 2000. 2000, we should have, at that point, gone on alarm, and we didn't. And the result is... We now have Citizens United. So what here's always comes, struck, what always struck me about that was that uh, Al Gore did not put up a fight. Well, I, I actually believe that, uh, although I respect Al as an environmentalist, I think he's done a lot of good work, and I'm glad he's gotten richer than Croesus since he left government in, 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 in doing what he's doing in the, in the private sector. But at the end of the day, uh, Al will go down as, one, as the guy who probably did the worst job of running for president in modern history because – his agreeing to let that happen was the unwinding of the republic. Now, let me go back to Newt Gingrich for a second, because this is a guy who, I mean, duplicity has no boundaries with this character. But what the fun thing of, that happened in Iowa, that from my perspective, Newt Gingrich, who was one of the all-time, you should see his quotes for the last two, three years, two years on Citizens United, he was the biggest fan of super PACs, the biggest fan of its free speech. He was the, you know, he, that expression, he who lives by the sword dies by the sword. Mm-hmm. Newt was the biggest proponent of super PACs. And what killed him in Iowa was Romney's super PAC. Now, these and, are unlimited sums on the of money. Side, Gingrich just got $5 million from a super PAC con- contributor this week. Yeah, and you know who the contributor was, right? Sheldon mm-hmm. Adelstein, who is right. a giant gambling entrepreneur. Okay, so so you, when the when guys who run casinos can throw five million dollars and it's not even a hiccup at a race in South Carolina to see if they can stop Mitt Romney, it tells you the whole system's gone crazy. And what we need to do now is we need to say something. And I just want to step back here for a second. Just step. I'm very positive on the economy this year because the president's finally stepping up. And because he's doing that, I'm, I'm seeing all these different little steps he's taking, including the recess appointment of the head of the Consumer Protection Bureau, which we desperately needed now for two years. And, and anybody who wants to see a funny piece on that should look at what John Stewart did last week. It was hilarious on that. You know, the Congress appoints, creates this by law two years ago, and then filibusters anybody getting appointed because they want to kill it, but they don't want to be on record as having killed it because they know the public finds it very to be very popular and the public believes they need, which they do, consumer protection. Now, why I'm pointing aside about New Gingrich is the super PAC issue is now sucking so much money into politics, even the people with virtually unlimited money are going to have, have to go get more money. 
Well, how do you go get more money? The only way you can go get more money is if you do more favors. And that's why big pharma will continue to sell drugs at 40% more than they should. That's why we will have inflated medical costs in our entire medical system. It's why uh, you'll, you'll continue to have weapon systems purchased by the Pentagon because the Congress forces them to when the military doesn't even want some of these weapon systems. And there were weapon systems that will never be used because they were designed for wars that will never be fought again, like large landmass wars. Okay? It's like we have to look at the fact that we are an empire, the United States. And we have made this tactical and strategic decision, which I think is a good decision, which is that we need to shrink the empire back. Okay, we, and when empires end, Howard, they only go out one of two ways. Most go out with a bang. The smart ones do it like the British. They go, oops, empire's ending. Let's carefully get, let's start pulling back. We don't want the Indians to slaughter every British, so let's give them their freedom in 1947. We're not going to sit there and kill Africans. Let's start pulling out of our colonies in Africa. So what they did is from being basically in control of 40% of the global population, they reverted back to their main base. And those countries that wanted to stay with them, they formed what's called the Commonwealth. And they said, okay, any Commonwealth nation, Canada is an example, you can stick with us. But anybody who wants to go their own way, hey, God bless, go your own way. We're not going to try and run the world anymore. Our day has passed for that. The United States is no longer in charge of the world, whether it likes it or not. So now we have to enter this new era of multilateral multilateral military, multilateral diplomacy, multilateral economic ties. And these are themes that you'll be hearing a lot about in this year on this program. The reason being, they, these issues and how we handle them will determine our success not only as a nation, but more importantly, our success with our legacy for the values that we hold true and we believe in in this country, the true American values. And if we can, we can re hang on to those as we pull back our military overextension, we'll start to reinvest a fraction, a tiny fraction, 10% of the money we've spent in Iran and Afghanistan, Iraq and Afghanistan, would have paid to build high-speed railroads all over America. Less than 10% of what we spent in those two countries would pay to revolutionize alternative energy and give us an export sec sector that we've never enjoyed before. And I could go on and on and on. Well, let me add a little whimsical thought to that, that so much money is being spent so quickly by the Republican candidates who are vying to be elected president that it would be interesting if one could measure the economic stimulus impact of that alone on the U.S. economy, that the very thing that they're trying to slow down, a recovery under Obama, uh, may be the very thing they're stimulating by spending money in all over the country, in all of these states, in all of these rural towns, courting all of these unemployed people, um, there's a certain irony in all that. No, no, I think, uh, Howard, I, I'm glad you said it because I, 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 I said I had a partial list of why I thought 2012 would be an uptick. One of them in my list is the excessive spending by the Republicans fighting for the election, and then that there will be a countervailing spending, finally, by the Democrats when they get to the, 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 the runoff to November. I'm looking at post-Republican, being after the Republican primaries are done, I'm looking at a million, a minimum of $2 billion, $2 billion getting spent in the civilian sector in the 2012 in relatively short period of time, like roughly five months. That's a huge injection of capital, and it's going to do exactly what you said. I mean, every television station in America is going to be doing the happy dance, every radio station, every form of media. And, and you, can, you can expect that those dollars will get spent quickly, 
and as they recirculate, they will tend to jack up the economy. Now, it won't work as well as stimulus that goes directly to the middle class, where you would get a five, six, seven percent five, six, seven multiplier, but it will still work. In other words, when you pay CBS a dollar more, they're not going to increase their dividends by a full dollar. They might increase their dividends by only a nickel. So part of that capital will get locked up in big corporations. But even that will help because it goes to their balance sheet. So, yes, the, 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 the political craziness, this, 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 this carpet bombing of, of, of ads that's occurring in the Republican primaries actually is very good for the economies of several states. I want to point out, by the way, when you look at a chart of the United States, at which states – are having the worst time recouping from the recession and recovering and actually getting worse still, top of the list is Arizona. Why? Because you can't have a war against your own population and have the economy of that state grow. So when they declared war on the Hispanic population in Arizona, in effect, they've basically shot themselves economically, and they aren't going to recover this year, as everybody else does. There are other places where that similar kind of um, Christian fundamentalist warfare is also being waged, and I would say that's down in the, in the southern tier. And you see places like, um, oh gosh, I would say uh, Mississippi's got a question mark in my mind, although they got very lucky recently and have uh, tied down to some new uh, some new automobile manufacturing plants are going in there. Uh, I, I think you're going to see uh, Georgia is going to continue to deteriorate. It's already had a bad year in '11. And smart money is saying, oops, Georgia's looks like it's gone a little bit over the edge. Um, I would guess that that's going to be true of Alabama. Um, it's probably true of South Carolina, although less so. So you've got states that are going to continue to struggle in, in, the, in the hardcore Christian fundamentalist belt. But the rest of the country as a whole is going to continue to do better. And, and I want to report, because the bell calc probably is California, California is already trending up, and we'll continue to do so for the balance of the year. Right. Well, any other global thoughts you want to have on the recovery of the U.S. economy yeah, before I, we move I, on to our uh, midsection of the show? Yeah, I think uh, let's let's just touch quickly on Europe because I think it's too critical not to. First of all, the U.S. Most people don't realize, but in 2011, U.S. was the second largest exporter in the world, world after China. They edged out Germany. Now. Exports are comprised of two elements, agriculture and manufacturing. Historically, we've always been a major ag- agricultural exporter. In manufacturing, this is the first year we really made it. But the two together, we edged Germany out as the, the largest exporter uh, uh, in the, certainly in the last half of 2011. I think it'll show that way for the full year. Well, one of the problems we're going to have as an exporter is that one of our partners, Europe, is not doing well. One part of Europe, England, is either already in a double-dip recession or headed there, almost certainly, I would guess, and is being run by a guy named David Cameron, who did exactly what the Academy would have said not to do a year and a half ago, which was to cut spending, try to balance the budget by reduction. He worried more about the deficit and the debt than he did about jobs, and now he's got a whole huge problem on his hands, and the question is how to get out of it. And do you think he'll go down as the Herbert Hoover of England? Well, he's already gone down, and even the Europeans refer to him this way, as the guy who didn't understand what happened, you know, how much worse he made the economy. Because England was poised for growth. It did not need to do that. In fact, uh, I want to compliment the banking regulators in, 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 in the U.K. because um, what they've done by – this is really important. Royal Bank of Scotland just yesterday 
You know, World Bank of Scotland is now 85% owned by the British public because it went bust. Unlike our banks, when a bank goes bust in England, they actually take it over, and then the, and then the shareholders become the public. So if it grows and improves, the public gets a benefit. Well, Royal Bank of Scotland is now growing, but the best thing that just happened why it stock jumped yesterday is they decided to leave the world of this highly speculative investment banking they were doing and instead rededicate their resources to lending money to people in Britain. What a concept. The stock market rewarded them for that, saying, oh, that's smart. That's smart and solid. A bank that lends money. What a concept. Now, to do that, they got they were able to reduce uh, 6,000 of their highest-paying jobs that were out there playing gambling. Now, it's true you, when you gamble, you can win, but it's also true when you gamble, you're at risk. So Royal Bank of Scotland is now going to go back to being a conventional bank. The stock market is rewarding it for that, that intelligence, and the bank regulators have a lot to be proud of. I also think Cameron will do a very good thing uh, together with the uh, exchequer, he's talking about putting some kind of cap on executive pay, or at least restraining it. Uh, they're also talking about a, uh, there's going to be a tax change in, in, in the U.K., and they are going to start hitting the upper 1%, 2% a little harder than as they should. Now, that's just the U.K. Let's talk about the rest of Europe for a second. Uh, really good news. Uh, and, I'm, and by the way, this is so new, Howard, I haven't had a chance to understand yet. I'm looking into it. Why did this happen? But yesterday... Spain went to the bond market and achieved an incredible sale of bonds at a less per not only less than they were paying just two months ago, but less than was predicted as recently as two or three days ago, uh, which bodes well for the the refinancing that Italy's going to be doing shortly. Now, why is this happening? Uh, as some of you who have been listening to this show regularly know, I believe Angela Merkel's very, very uh, risky strategy is the right one. I think people are beginning to see it's going to work. I think the decision by the ECB, the European Bank, <clears throat> has um, been taken as a signal. Uh, what the ECB did basically, Howard, is they ba- they started printing money and letting banks borrow it and, and 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 using the money as a way to shore up the, the, the European banking system liquidity-wise, which is like a quantitative easement is what we call it here in the U.S. But what it was seen as a symbol that that. Merkel, the ECB, and I would say Mario Draghi at this point are working in concert with Mario Monti and Sarkozy in France, and that cast of characters. So I just named the head of the ECB. I just had the new premier, prime minister of Italy, uh, and the head of France and the head of Germany. They're working together with the cooperation of Spain, I believe Portugal, and other countries in that in that in the eurozone to create a new level of political unity which will constrain the ability of those countries in the EU who use the euro, it will constrain their political freedom to create huge, massive deficits and force the rest of the community to pay for it. So the, 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 the likelihood is by March or April of this year, Merkel's strategy, the actual treaty, will be unveiled late March. And I believe that not all 17 of the Eurozone countries, meaning the countries within the European zone is 27 countries, the European group, of those 27, 17 countries actually use the euro as their currency, so they have a monetary union. And of those 17, the vast majority are now going to enter through a new treaty, which will be like the third layer on a wedding cake. And the smaller layer will be, I'm going to guess, 12 to 14 of the 17 countries will participate, uh, certainly not less than 10. And those countries will surrender politi- some degree of political freedom, but in return for which we'll get the right to issue debt that will be guaranteed by the other members of the group, which will include Germany, will include France, will include Italy, will include Spain. 
will include Portugal most likely. So those and several other countries which remain to identify themselves as this goes forward. That is going to happen with a backdrop, though, of recessionary tendencies in Europe, which will then push the U.S. economy down because we won't be able to export as much to Europe. Now, I think there are other strengths in the American economy which will make up for that. I believe there are whole new industries that the United States could be launching within the next 12 to 24 months, particularly in the renewable, renewable energy sector. And so I'm looking for the U.S. economy to grow at between 2.2 to 3% this year, closer to 3 than 2.2. And I'm seeing some downward pressure from Europe in terms of our ability to export to them on the manufacturing side. I see a tremendous demand for uh, American agricultural goods. I see that the um, corn ethanol subsidies going away will give us even more in the way of agricultural uh, products to export. So even though Europe is going to have to go through a bit of a recession, I think, and that seems like it's verged to do so, it looks to me like by the time the treaty gets put out in March, by the time it gets kicked around in May, April, June, enough people will realize that the European crisis is going to come to a successful end, and from that you're going to see a reliquification of not only the banks but the sovereign debt, and from that you're going to see the beginning of the end of the recession in Europe together with the good results in the U.S. So I'm thinking that, that Europe's going to end up 2013 on the road to recovery and clearly there by 2014. Excuse me, by the end of year 2012 on the road to recovery, clearly there sometime in 2013. Good. I think it's a great time to segue into a quick lightning round and then we'll get on to our last topic. Um, again, Lightning Round is a series of quick insights and comments on various asset classes, such as bonds, equities, gold, and real estate. Um, where would you like to start today, Ronaldo? Well, uh, you know, I think that the stock market is going to be safe for Americans again. I think that one can selectively start to get in. I'm not, uh, I'm not recommending specifics yet, although I would say if I were looking at the market today, I would select a stock which has a great deal of stability, uh, that is uh, going to be that is paying based on today's price at least two percent or more in dividends because that puts it way above a CD rate. I think there are programs like the one that you run on the covered call program that's going to be very successful this year for people to generate at least a five, six, seven percent return. So you'll be going uh, back into the covered call funds that are based on large cap equities, is what you're saying? Yeah, I think some large cap equities are safe now because I don't see a crisis happening in this. Uh, by the way, I would tend to be large cap U.S. more than international right now, but I think both are probably safe. In other words, I don't see a, a risk that, that of a massive kind of default risk that we were looking at potentially last year mm -hmm. when the U.S. government was out of control. Um, I think that we're seeing um, – I think the price of gold uh, is going to – Probably it's back up. I think it's up to 16 and change at this point from the 15 low. That was just a sell-off. I think a lot of profit-taking. Uh, my guess is the consensus estimate that gold will be up 12% more this year is probably accurate. I think gold has a little more room to run. A lot of people think it's on its way to 2,000, and sometimes those predictions become self-fulfilling. I certainly think it's no risk to hold gold. I don't think I'd run out and buy gold at this point. I think there are better things. Um, uh, the World Business Academy is helping one company I know called Renovate America, which is going to be, which is structuring a way to get money to individual homeowners to reduce their energy consumption and provide them with long-term low interest rates and loans and do it in a very quick and efficient fashion so that we can green America one house at a time, which Obama's wanted to do but didn't have government money to do. Now there's a private company that we're working with that will be able to do it, and I'm looking forward to helping them uh, achieve their objectives. I, and, and it'll 
produce great returns to the investors, phenomenal returns, 8 to 10% returns with you know, virtually zero risk of default. I think other asset classes that I like right now, um, really important point, housing market has bottomed out, meaning we still have a lot of foreclosures to sop up. We still have a lot of uh, things to go through in the housing market. We're not going to have a building boom yet, although I want to point out in some states um, the amount of new construction is actually back at 2008 levels. But the fact that we had the resale levels hit pre-recession levels means that we're now starting to sop up all that excess housing stock. And as the economy continues to grow and improve, the demand is clearly there for the housing. The interest rates are very, very, very low. The banks and are I, going I to be... remind people that the Fed has basically said they're going to keep interest rates low until well into 2013. Now, if we have a rapid speed up in the economy, that might shift, uh, but they have not indicated any shift in that. So you have an opportunity with the housing market of, again, low prices um, and low interest rates. Yeah, I, I think that's, that's, by the way, I think that's great. And, and you know, there was a fascinating thing just happened. They released the numbers on consumer borrowing, and it was astronomically higher than anybody had predicted. Uh, the highest, uh, I think, the highest estimate for consumer uh, borrowing was that it would be at about 11.8 billion, and it turned out to be 20.4 billion. Now, uh, that indicates the, the increase in credit to purchase all those automobiles because they sold 13.4 million automobiles last year. Uh, so, uh, and credit card debt, by the way, has not gone up dramatically, which is good. So, I think the the, the, the consumer is starting to rebalance uh, what they want to buy. I think they're doing it selectively, which is good. They're not on a, they're not going crazy on a spending spree, and I believe with um, let's just talk about oil for a second. The price of oil is about a hundred dollars a barrel today. It hit a peak of a hundred and ten. Uh, I think that's the range for the whole year. It might drop as low as ninety, eighty-five. I don't think it'll go any lower than that. Don't think it'll go higher than a hundred and ten. It's in that range. Then I think hundred is probably a good average number to look at, with the one caveat that. Iran closing the Strait of Hormuz is not an issue. That's not going to happen, and that's just something the oil companies will will beat the drum on to try and keep the price up. The real risk is in Nigeria, and everybody should be looking at Nigeria, and they're not looking at Nigeria, and they should be. And the and the, and the and the oil stock that people should be shorting right now is Shell Oil, not BP anymore. I think the damage to BP has been done, and it should have been done in the way it was. Uh, the real overpriced stock in the oil sector at this point is, is in the oil patches is Shell because they're the ones sitting on this time bomb that's ticking in Nigeria, where increasing amounts of violence, uh, a Muslim fundamentalist movement has now joined with an indigenous movement that was being you know, basically driven from the land by oil pollution. Uh, you've got the second largest oil spill in modern times has happened off the coast. People didn't even know it happened. I mean, there was no reporting of it. I mean, you've got some serious, serious problems going on in Nigeria, which are very, very, very unstable area. Now, I want to make one other comment globally. <clears throat> Uh, maybe, uh, and this is not technically an asset class, but when you look at how asset classes perform, you need to look at the situation in other countries. Like, is China going to continue to grow? Answer, yes. At what rate? Well, long story, but not as high as the glory years of, of 09 and 08 and 07, 06, but more than uh, higher, probably double what it, at least double what India will do. India is not going to grow that fast this year, but India is not going to go negative either. And, in fact, I saw a great statistic yesterday where India's bank deposits outdid credit growth just for the first time this last uh, quarter. So you got a situation where <clears throat> India is trying to restabilize itself and has huge political problems. China is about to go through a major change. happens every 
five years, I believe. But this is the big one coming up because the change of the presidency. So they're going to be, be redoing the, the, the top echelon of Chinese leadership over the next five years, starting with this year. So you're going to see China being very careful how it controls its economy. Uh, and you're not going to see giant growth, and you're not going to see any decreased growth. You're going to see a very I'll, moderate I'll mention growth. one thing that I've said before on the show about China that a lot of people analyze China from all different directions and think they're going to do this or that or this or that, and usually they're wrong. And people forget that the single biggest issue always for China, one that's been around for 5,000 years, is social stability. Right. When you have a quarter of the world's population in one place, you simply cannot afford a 10% unemployment rate, um, or you have couple hundred million people wandering down the streets with nothing to do. And historically in China, that has always meant regime change, revolution, turmoil. And that's a long-standing historical fact. And it's a long-standing historical policy that the government in China wants to avoid that kind of chaos. Every decision they make will be framed on, is this going to increase or decrease social stability? It's not whether the U.S. wants us to do this or somebody else wants us to do that, or we have trade deficits here or there, it is social stability. And that's a fact that should never be let go. Yeah, I think that's really correct. And, and, and one of the reasons why I interjected the Indian and the Chinese conversation in the in the asset class is because um, I still think the renminbi, or the yuan, as some people refer to it, the renminbi is, is a good asset buy. I think that it's getting easier to buy Chinese-denominated instruments, as you know, Howard, and you right. can now buy Chinese currency. And clearly, I think that it's going to continue to appreciate because, A, it's undervalued, but, B, it's because the Chinese want now to create a, a backup to the U.S. as the reserve currency, which will happen increasingly in 2012. Won't be, it won't be a finality in 2012, but as we just saw, in 2011 with countries moving away from the dollar. Uh, for example, Japan in 2011 now negotiates and purchases with the Chinese in yen and renminbi-denominated transactions instead of dollars. That's, that's the first time that's happened since World War II. Um, you're seeing the Iranians and the, and the Chinese are transacting in renminbi. Uh, so there's a lot of countries in the world that want to see the U.S. dollar removed as a reserve currency, <clears throat> which has terrible implications for us. We don't get our house in order before that. But, and Ronaldo, let me actually interrupt you right here because we are getting down to near the end of the hour, and I know we want to get back to the question about the U.S. budget deficit and why it is not important and why, as we said at the top of the show, this is a political issue and not an economic issue. Okay. The short version, uh, because of lack of time, and, and we can always keep this conversation going next month, the short version is something that you referred to at the beginning when we were talking about those charts. They had 120% of GDP is the percentage of, 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 uh, of debt to GDP, 120% in 1946. Today, we're probably just a little bit north of 60 to 65% at most, I think. Now, if you look at the total dollars of GDP debt in 1946, it's a tiny fraction of what it is today. But as a percentage, it was much larger. What happened? Well, if you look at a chart from 1946 till 1980, it fell every single year because the economy grew faster than the debt did. So that as a percentage, it kept dropping dropping until Reagan came in. And if you look at a chart, you can tell exactly the year that, 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 that Reagan came in and changed our tax policies because as soon as he did, there's a V, and, and, and the debt starts shooting up, and it shot up dramatically. If you look at a chart of quarter by quarter, you see that the debt was shooting up all through the Bush years. And when Obama took office, so we've seen you know, four quarters of Obama – 
it's like a tiny little bit on top of this enormous mountain that was created in the prior eight years and that was built on a mountain created since 1980. So what we have in this country is a misallocation of tax policy. We currently charge too little almost in every direction. But the places where it's the worst is we have got to equalize. For example, the three founding partners of the Carlyle Group each took out a payday of $134 million this year in December, and their tax on that is only 15%. Now, if a, a, a guy making fifty grand gets a, a raise or a bonus and he gets 5000 extra, his tax will be at the full tax rate of 35%. Now, why is it that a guy who makes 134 million pays 15% and a guy making 50 grand is going to pay 30% or more? The answer is an unfair tax policy. So, the deficit's not the issue. First we have to fix revenue and then we can fix spending as well. And and frankly, you want to fix both. But the spending issue problems are not where people would in the political process are looking right now. The the, the real revenue issues are a fair tax policy which we don't have in this country. So let me just say something I think I said in the last show. I want to repeat it. The goal for this economy must be that we can support, a family of four can be supported with a single wage earner in the family. We've got to go back to what we believed at the end of World War II and which we made true until 1980. We should be able to produce, no question, enough wealth that a single person can support a family of four. Number two, we need to be able to produce in a college education system second to none, where every single student who gets accepted goes through college for free and does not come up with two hundred fifty or $350,000 worth of debt, which will be paying off the rest of their life, they literally get it for free, like the country of Denmark, where, by the way, not only do they get a free education, they get a free stipend to live on while they're getting the education. Denmark is the, uh, the second wealthiest country in the world because of that policy since World War II. So we have to realize that if we don't educate our population, if we don't restore the middle class, okay, I want it to be so that everybody in the middle class knows that if they have a smart child, they're going to go through college, and the middle class will know that's part of the American dream, and it's actually real. So how do we get there? We get there by not focusing on the deficit today. We get there by focusing on fair tax policy, growing the income side of our ledger. If it costs you $10,000 to live, it won't help you as much to try and cut your living by another $10 because you can barely stay alive anyway, it's going to be easier to go out and get a second job and make a little bit more money. In other words, create the revenue side because you can only go so far on creating the, on reducing the expense side. Now, where do we need to increase expenses in the government? Where do we need to decrease them? We clearly need to increase expenses for education. We need to decrease them for military dramatically. We, we do not need to have the biggest military in the world by a factor of two over everybody else. It's crazy. Uh, in fact, I know people in the Pentagon who think it won't even be a problem. They won't even skip a beat cutting $450 billion, which they've agreed to do over 10 years. They're worried about cutting a trillion if we don't have a – and there's going to be a future program on this. Because you remember, Howard, when that super committee did not reach an agreement, it sets in motion automatic reductions, which are fairly draconian, that I'd like to see much more carefully shaped. The military will want them more carefully shaped as well. But if they go through – if the Congress doesn't get its act together, there will be a $1 trillion further reduction in military spending, and that money will be freed up then to repair our road, roads and bridges. So where do we need to spend more? Roads, bridges, infrastructure. Uh, we need to get more people back to work for the government in education. We need to get more people working for the government in fire prevention, in police. I know in a specific case of a guy who was physically beat up in the presence of witnesses – 
and he can't get a copy of the police report in a major city in California unless he pays $20 and waits four weeks because the police department says they don't have the staff to process it. Okay, that's not acceptable. So if it's true that they're that thin on police officers, we've got to staff up. If, if we know we're not putting enough money into education. And I'll leave people with this one thought. The mark of any modern society can be blamed this way. Do you spend as much money to incarcerate people as you've spent to educate them? If the answer is you spend more on incarceration than you do on education, what you're going to have is a growing level of incarceration. If you spend it on education, you're going to have a vibrant, growing economy and a happy society and lesser incarceration every day. Who wants to keep paying $40,000 a year for everybody in jail when more than half of them are there for victimless crimes? I don't. Exactly. Right. Ronaldo, we're just about out of time. Uh, before I turn it back to you for last thoughts, let me remind our listeners that we will be back on the air on the 9th at 11 a.m., which is the second Thursday of the month, as always. You can always follow us online. Uh, at the Economy's website, uh, worldbusiness.org. And if you want to place a question for next time on any issue, uh, we'd be happy to deal with them. Simply email us at info at worldbusiness.org. Ronaldo, last thoughts on this, our first show of the new year. Well, I think I want to reach out to our audience, Howard, every single person listening. Please, even if it's just ten words, send us an email. Let us know what you think. Let us know what you'd like more of, what you think we're doing right. If you've got some criticism, we'd like to hear that too. But most of all, go tell two or three friends this is a free program, this is a free service. Urge them to go listen to what we said six months ago and compare it to what actually happened. Urge them to listen to this show and see if we turn out to be right. I guarantee you we will be. And if, in fact, that is the case, it makes you money to listen to this show. Share that good wealth with your friends. It also will help cheer you up when there's good news like there is because there's a lot of good news right now. And it will keep you from losing your focus in the midst of what appears to be a political debate, but which is really a mudslinging contest with no, absolutely no useful purpose whatsoever. You'll be able to let that all go. You'll be able to stop paying attention to the mass media, which is not doing a good job of covering it. And you'll be able to start getting information that will actually advance you and protect you and the people you love. So you'll, you'll experience prosperity on every level, body, mind, and soul in 2012. That's my wish for you, and that's what I'm committed to helping you achieve, and with your help, achieve for others. Thanks so much for listening and for spreading the word. Ronaldo, thank you again, and look forward to having this conversation again next month with you and all of our listeners. Until then, have a wonderful, wonderful day and a good month. Bye-bye now.